I want to begin with a, with a passage, uh, if I get the first slide. It's from John 17.3. And I believe that this particular verse establishes what the goal of the Christian life is. We know that our mission is the Great Commission, that we're called to be witnesses uh, to the ends of the earth, but our witness flows out of the fulfillment of this verse, John 17.3. In John 17.3, Jesus in his high priestly prayer prays these words, and this is eternal life, that they know you. Notice that. Not know about you, but that they know you. That there is relational intimacy with you and Jesus Christ and with me, whom you have sent. A little bit later, he says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, may your scriptures continually point them to us. Because God has chosen not to keep himself hidden, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that God in various times and various ways spoke through the prophets and through the scriptures, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is the final word of the Father. And what is he the final word of? The revelation of God's heart toward humanity. That God has revealed himself to us and it is his desire that we enter into intimacy with him, that we have restored relationship with him. This should be the goal. And I believe that every misstep that we take as Christians is often directly in correspondence to our misunderstanding of his character. This is the very issue at the heart of Malachi. That the children of Israel had forgotten their history and they had lost their hope. That they had misunderstood the heart of God and in doing so became complainers and became a people that consistently questioned God and His character and His purpose in their lives without being willing to actually put their trust in Him. And I think that this is a deep problem that actually continues to find its way in our lives today because the human heart is wicked and deceitful above all things not to be trusted as it says in Psalm 14 that God looks down from the heavens to see if there's even one man or one woman who isn't stupid and he comes up with a string of zeros we are fundamentally broken we are fundamentally lost that's why I continually say that the two pillars of Door of Hope's preaching needs to be anchored in a very low anthropology and a very high vision of radical grace We desperately need God's intervention into our lives. And Malachi is no exception. It's God's intervention into a community of broken people that he loves. And he's trying to get their attention through this prophet as he does the other prophets. Faith is the confidence of God's self-revelation as found in the Holy Scriptures. And what I want to ask us today is do we talk as if he is real but act as if he is not? Because this is one of the issues that we will find within the confrontations that occur throughout the book of Malachi. What do we find when our beliefs are tested in the fires of practical living? You see, failure to give time to the cultivation of the knowledge of God is what leads to an anemic experience as Christians. And what we need to understand is that that what God desires of us is that we invite Him to remove every false trust 
to disengage our hearts from all the secret hiding places and to bring us out into the open where we can discover for ourselves whether or not we actually trust Him. Because if we don't do that, we're going to find ourselves in the very place of the prophetic words from George Orwell in his, in his short essay, Shooting the Elephant. You wear a mask and your face will grow into it. You see, the children of Israel, in forgetting their past and losing their hope in their future, had become complacent, compromised, indifferent, and complainers. And I think that this often can be the experience even of the born-again believer. As Alan Redpath said, going through life, having this written over our heads, saved soul, wasted life. This is kind of one of those messages that's going to force us to ask the question, if we are vehicles of God's grace, His one-way love toward us, we can't earn it, there's nothing we can do uh, to deserve it, His grace is unfair, it comes to us, It puts us all in an even playing field. We are fundamentally broken. We are fundamentally lost. God has intervened into that brokenness through His Son, Jesus. But how then shall we live if we've received that grace? And how do we maintain an active understanding of who God is that we might actually live as conduits of that grace to a world that is lost? And so as we enter these conflicts that the prophet Malachi brings on behalf of God to the children of Israel, um, I, I pray that you will take into consideration these questions. Now the first confrontation is this. It's the questioning of God's love. Malachi's sermon uh, was directed to extremely tough audience. You had in his congregation, you had the righteous, the disillusioned, the cynical, the callous, the dishonest, the apathetic, the doubting, the skeptical, and the outright wicked What does a preacher say to this type of crowd? And I believe that Malachi, as the very messenger of Yahweh, that the primary word, the vital word to Israel was profoundly simple, and it is the same simple word that you and I need today. And it is the opening line of chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you. I have always loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us. Notice, God makes his statement, and then comes the questioning of God, the doubting of God. And he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. And it goes on to say, one of those very often misunderstood verses, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Uh, the same kind of extreme dichotomy that Jesus uses, unless you hate mother and brother, father and sister. Um, You cannot be my disciples. He's showing extreme language to paint a preferential choosing. And it gives us a revelation, actually, of elective love. Was Jacob more worthy of God's election than Esau? And did God hate Esau? No, he blessed Esau. Esau gave up his birthright for a meal. Esau's Esau's descendants were blessed and populated. However... Uh, and populous. However, Esau becomes a reflection of Edom, which was a wicked nation that came under God's direct judgment. Israel became a conduit of God's uh, a vehicle by which the Messiah would come, but even Israel became an object of God's judgment for its disobedience and rebellion. But here we have to understand this, is that what God is saying to Israel is what God through Jesus and the Gospel says to us. I have loved you. I have always loved you. 
I have chosen you. And that election and where Israel had lost their way is that they need to understand that God's love is an elective love. He chooses to love sinners and their sin. And sadly, Israel had lost its understanding of that. They had forgotten that God chose them, that through them they would be a blessing to all nations. And instead they had turned in inwardly upon them upon themselves they had become they had come into that placement of scarcity for this is after that after Israel had been sacked by Babylon this is after they had returned to their land which was not did not nearly have the glory that it once had and they had become they had become concerned about their own safety and there was a there was a loss of zeal for Yahweh and for his ways and so there is there's some deep problems but the primary problem that I I would argue is the same problem that rests within the heart of many believers today is the fundamental belief that God does not love me that his love for me is dependent upon my performance for him and i think that this is problematic because what it creates is a christianity that's built upon a guilt management system which is not sustainable the only thing that actually moves us toward living differently is the foundation that I am loved no matter what. That on my worst day, I am loved. That that, that love of God is what causes me to actually be willing to remove the mask and to begin to step out into the light. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing, writes Martin Luther in his commentary to Galatians. This is the root issue from which all other issues flow. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. It has to be the foundation. The love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this is a powerful statement because it, it, the question is, is, is the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit means it's a revelation that God loves us or is the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit? That is, it gives us the capacity to love in a way that we were not able to before. Yes, it is both of those things. That the love of God, as it's poured out into our hearts by the Spirit, naturally turns us into conduits when we allow that supernatural love to tr- truly take root in our lives. The hardest thing for me through my Christian life is to believe that God really loves me. It's always been a difficult thing. It's why I preach it the most because I am convinced it's the thing that we need the most and it's the thing that the enemy continually challenges in our lives because everything in our existence seems to be dependent upon performance. Even in our relationships, often even in our family life, I will love you if you do this. We don't tend to function from grace, but we all desperately need it every day every moment of every day. And I think that this is the powerful question that I want you to ask because it's the, the confronting of Yahweh here is hinged upon Israel's loss of its understanding of God's own proclamation about Himself that He is the Lord who is abounding in steadfast love, who is slow anger who has loved Israel as it says in Jeremiah with an everlasting love and for us 
looking at this text through the lens of the gospel, looking through the cross back at the text to understand it even more fully, that love is revealed in all of its fullness on the cross of Calvary. That the whole essence of our fundamental belief as Christians is that God's love is so great that while we were yet still sinners, dead in our sins, Christ Jesus came to die for us. Living the life that we couldn't live. Living out as the both judge and the judged in our place. This radical one-way love that says, I love you not because of who you are, but because of who I am. It's the very thing that we need to hear again and again, but it's also the thing that violates our egos because it says that you're not nearly as lovable as you think you are. It just means that God is really, really loving, more loving than you can dare imagine. <laughs> My continual statement that you are not a bigger failure than God already knows you are is not meant to offend It's meant to help you release the lie, the mask, that you may or may not be growing into. The second confrontation is the questioning of God's sovereignty. Look what it says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priest, who despise my name. Notice he starts with the spiritual leaders because they are responsible for teaching the people. And they are leading the people astray from the truth of who God is. And the two things that God wants Israel to think about when they think about him is one who is both a loving father who cares for his children, provides for his children, disciplines his children. At the same time, he is the sovereign Lord of the universe who spoke and the universe leapt into existence and demands that we allow him to be responsible for us. Malachi 1.14 says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and bows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So what the prophet Malachi, which literally just means messenger of God, what he is proclaiming to the children of Israel, to starting with the priests and then to the people, is that their misunderstanding of God's love leads to a unwillingness to surrender their lives and their livelihood to that same God. And so there is a questioning of God's sovereignty. And isn't this the essence of sin? A rejection of God's love as Father and a rejection of His rule as sovereign. Isn't that the essence of sin? For when our first parents in the garden ate of the fruit, what were they doing? They were essentially deciding for themselves at that point that they would be the ones that would determine what is right and what is wrong. They now were masters of their own lives. And as I've said a million times, and I'll say it again, the worst enemy you will ever face is yourself, and the worst master you will ever have is yourself. And we're told, just love yourself. You will not ever have a problem doing that. Uh, So we probably don't need to be told to do that. What we need to understand is who we are in the light of who God is, a God who is gracious and loving. But the problem is, is that our inability to know him intimately 
often is hinged upon our unwillingness to surrender our lives to Him. Because the issue that is at stake here is that there is this, this despising of God's temple, which was a representation of His presence. And there was a sacrificial system in place. And you were to never offer a lamb with blemish as a sacrificial lamb. And what the children of Israel were doing, as well as the priesthood, is they were keeping back the best for themselves and offering to God that which God firmly rejected in his own Torah. And they did it because they were actually questioning, once again, rather than trusting. They were misunderstanding his love, and therefore they were actually living with that scarcity mentality. If I give him my best, I won't have it any longer. And then what? What if I lose everything? And this question that arises is, is something that I want us to understand because it's not a question of me telling you what it is that you should give to God. The one thing I'm very comfortable saying is that when people ask me, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? I'm very comfortable saying everything. Darcy and I often talk about the weight of being in the position that we're in as, as two people that founded Door of Hope of that, that weight of being under that kind of, that, that the lens of a whole community um, and, and the, the, the temptation to put on the mask to present to you some sort of super-Christian stance. And I know that it would be believable in this blazer that I'm wearing. Uh, but the problem is, is that the blazer only covers up the true reality is that I'm like a scared child every week when I get up here, that I constantly wake up hearing the lies of the enemy saying, you are a fraud, you are a fraud, they can see through you, God doesn't really love you, don't listen to, don't, don't, don't listen to, to your, to your conscience, you, you should go do something else with your life. I, I listen to those same lies, the same lies, and you, we all have different lies, and we all have different things that weigh us down, and it causes us to begin to question God's rule over our lives. And the temptation, every time that happens, is to take our lives back into our own hands and begin to define for ourselves what is right and wrong, because we think it'll be easier when in actuality we generally just make giant messes of our lives. And so I can't tell you what it means to, what is your thing that you're not presenting to God? What are you holding back from God? I can't, I can't define that for you. I will never be that prescriptive preacher. This is the thing that I'm comfortable saying. If the love of Christ compels us to do anything, it compels us first and foremost to surrender. That I am sure of. That the thing that the Father wants from you more than anything is for you to allow Him to begin to be responsible for you. And that's a terrifying thing. I think Mark and Rebecca are a picture of that. They felt called to actually leave a job that provides stability and comfort, going, not knowing where they're going. I'm pretty sure there's some verses about that uh, in regards to the, that beautiful chapter on faith in Hebrews. And they are trusting Jesus and I always say that the safest thing we can do is follow Jesus, but we rarely know where he's going. And honestly, if we knew where following Jesus would ultimately lead us in this life, would any of us actually follow him? 
But if we all believe with a great hope and an expectation that the Scriptures are true, that ultimately where it leads us, no matter where it leads us in this life, it leads us to an eternity of intimacy with Him, then we should be willing to go wherever He calls us. Questioning God's sovereignty means not allowing Him the right to be Himself in and through our lives. And this is exactly what they're doing by their refusal to sacrifice the best. They are breaking the law. And the good news for us on this side of the cross is that Jesus is the end of the law. So the question for us is, how are we responding to God's grace? Do we, do we sin that grace may abound, Paul writes? Absolutely not. No, we continually take His grace in as we surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be filled, that we might become conduits of our sovereign King because He desires to utilize us for some mysterious reason to be the very vehicles by which He expands His gospel on earth. And if the gospel isn't being expanded through us as a community, then there's a fundamental problem with our understanding of God's sovereignty, at least practically. We may say we believe God's sovereign, but the question is, is have you truly surrendered? Having fun yet. Third confrontation. Questioning God's holiness. This is where they end up. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the first thing that that Malachi is calling them out in regards to the questioning of God's holiness is their willingness to adopt other gods. There's an idolatry at play. And let me just state very clearly that this is something that is fundamentally problematic in the church today. The human heart is an idol factory. We are so prone to false worship, we don't even see it half the time. How much of our understanding of God even, or our understanding of Jesus, is often a Jesus of our own creation, our own making? How many things are done in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity, that has nothing to do with the Gospel, or can be even pointed to anywhere in the Scriptures? That is because there is a natural tendency toward the human heart to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. As it states in Romans. And here Israel has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. And I, I like that Malachi softens the blow and says, Israel still loves God, but they have a misunderstanding of that love. They have a misunderstanding, they, and that misunderstanding of love has led to a misunderstanding of his rule and his right over them as a chosen people. And now it's led to a violation of his holiness. And when we actually define the word holiness, what do we mean by that word? Holiness is not just simply separation from sin although that is a part of it, it also means a dedication to God's purposes and plans. And so to be holy is to be one who is dedicated to God's vision for his world. To God's heart for a lost and broken humanity. And so this is part of it. They have married, they have married foreign daughters. So he's specifically condemning the men who have married these foreign women who bring with them the gods of the surrounding lands and adopt worship of those false gods alongside their worship of the true God. And this is something I think that we do 
many of us, if not all of us at some point, is that we bring even into our church communities the worship of lots of false gods. That is, whatever it is, and if you want to know what your gods are, you simply ask the simple question, what is it that I spend the majority of my time thinking about? What do I love? Because what I love is what I worship. And that's a hard question, isn't it? Because immediately we can come in and realize that our kids sitting next to us are little demigods. Because our love of them often surpasses the love of the Father, the love of Jesus. Often our spouse can be, maybe for many of you, you're like, no, that's actually not a problem if you've been married for any length of time. Darcy would be like, no, not my problem. That might be my problem. My wife, um, she can quickly be a god for me. There, there are certain things. For some of you, it's, it's your job. It's your, it's your vision. You Maybe you're young enough where it's, it's all about your future hope and what you're going to do with your career. Or even the idolatry that comes through the fantasy partner that you're, you think you're going to marry. Or the place where you live. Or the, food, the, pleasure, the leisure that you, that time that you, you spend. The hours that you spend doing whatever it is. Whatever it is that takes up the majority of your mental space and in your heart's affections, that is your God. And many of you sitting in this room right now, if not all of us, at some point, even in this hour, will find that there are gods right next to us, all around us, in the mind, in the heart. And that's why Calvin says, the heart is a human idol factory. You pull one out, and it reveals a string of others. And this is why we continually need the gospel of grace. Because you come to that place and you're just like, whoa, it's me. Who will save me from this body of death? And that's the good news of the gospel. He goes on to say, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Why, why am I not experiencing God? Look, listen to the children of Israel's questioning of God. They don't understand His holiness and they can't figure out when they're living, in a, living a life that's contrary to the, very, to the very heart of what it means to be God's chosen people that all of a sudden His presence is diminished in their lives. It never says that they're not His children. It just says that they're not experiencing His presence. They are prodigal in heart. And the prodigal is always loved by the father, but he doesn't realize or understand or know or experience the father's love until he returns to his heart. And so he says, you cover the altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, God takes the covenant of marriage very seriously. I think we often get hung up on, on, uh, on the, the nuances of what does it mean as a Christian community around God's word, around marriage and divorce? And, and what we can say is that God hates divorce. Scripture says that because he knows that it hurts people's hearts. He knows that it, that it does damage. It doesn't mean that you can't be forgiven. It doesn't mean that you can't move forward. It doesn't mean that you can't have a new future. It just speaks plainly about the reality of the devastation that occurs when we throw away our relationships without thinking, that, without thinking about the fact that there will always be consequences. That there will always be carnage, if you will. And he points out here is that the men of Israel were literally discarding their wives without reason 
in hopes of getting that new relationship that was more exciting. Is that any different than what we see in our culture today? I mean, what was, what, I think Chesterton wrote clear back in like 1920. He says, if incompatibility was a, a reason for divorce, all men and women would be divorced for all men and women are incompatible by nature. <laughs> Mary Carr said, a dysfunctional family is any family that has more than one person. <laughs> Darcy, are we dysfunctional? Yes, yes we are. We're dysfun- My name's Josh, I'm dysfunctional. It's so good to be with you today. This is what it means to walk in the light. So it's the willingness to, to recognize that we are a people that often question God's holiness, often violate that holiness, maybe proclaim it mentally. I agree that God is holy, but we don't actually think about what that means for us. And as a person who continually preaches a radical grace that meets us in our brokenness, that on our worst thinking day, God is crazy about us, it doesn't mean that he wants to leave us in the brokenness. I'm never trying to preach a gospel that doesn't bring transformation to the light. I'm just, I'm just extremely leery of transformation being built upon a new ladder of legalism that actually leads to greater exhaustion. My belief is that a continual looking to the cross of Calvary and to the atoning work of Jesus, walking in the light means continual daily return to the heart of the Father through confession and transparency, a willingness to rip the mask off again and again and again until the day in which we see Jesus face to face and sin is no longer a problem. For he saved me from sin, but he unfortunately didn't save me from sinning. Not yet. Not in this age of grace, which causes me to cast myself in daily dependence upon him, as it should you as well. And when we don't, we lose sight of that holiness factor. God's love is an elective love. He chooses to love sinners in their sin, but he is not content to leave us there. His love is also purifying. It is holy. And he is a holy fire. The desire to be holy rather than happy should be the drive of the the Christian heart. The truly spiritual person knows that God will give an abundance of joy after we have become able to receive it without injury to our souls. Isn't that often true? There are things and dreams that we have that we have to die to before he can birth them in the right way, usually in a way we never expected and often when we no longer need it. The fourth confrontation is the questioning of God's justice. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? And then this is a fascinating answer. Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2, instead of answering the question, Why is there so much injustice, God? around us. The reason we're not trusting you is because there's still so much wickedness. Isn't that funny and ironic that the wicked are able to speak of wickedness? The inability to see the sinfulness of one's own heart, only the ability to see the sinfulness of others. Isn't that so true? When we see, you ever had this happen? You see a quality in your parent and you're like, oh my gosh, that is so annoying. And you realize that yes, it is your quality, <laughs> fully. Like you own it, you actually are a mirror to it. And then someone like your kid or your spouse points it out and you are so 
violated. It almost brings violence out of you. You're like, like, man, my parent talks a lot. What are you talking about? That's all you've ever done. And like, that's not true. We, this is how we respond to the reality of like, we want justice for them, but not for us. We think we're the ones who have been violated, but we forget that we also are the violators. That Jesus died for the oppressed and the oppressor. And this is why the answer of Malachi looks forward to the future. And for us, it's the past. And he looks forward to the cross. He says, Behold, I send a messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you speak will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. I love that. A picture of being burned clean and cleansed. Those two, those two metaphors. That is the beautiful picture. It's a terrifying picture for those that reject the gospel. It is a powerful picture for us as believers. Because justice, God says, you can question my ability to bring justice. But I am telling you, you don't want justice right now because it would mean your absolute total and permanent destruction justice will be served at my expense for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that while we were yet still sinners christ jesus died for us that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of god that the whole essence of the gospel is that man cannot reach god in his own effort he is condemned He is worthy of total judgment from an absolutely holy and just God. But God in His infinite love, a love that has nothing to do with us, He says, in spite of your brokenness, in spite of your recklessness, in spite of the fact that you want nothing to do with me, I am actually not content to exist without you. And the picture of Jesus is a God who actually comes down to earth. The reason the Gospel appeals to my sensibilities versus any other world religion is that every world religion is built upon a series of rungs of a ladder that you climb and hopefully you can get to the top and God won't be mad when you get when you when you reach your goal which most likely you won't but instead the gospel is a down-to-earth gospel the God who came down to earth the God who got his hands and feet dirty the God who bled for us. The God who took death into himself, he died that we might live. The God who in the man of Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The God who on the cross was both the judge and the judged in our place. And so his answer to the questioning of Israel around his justice, he says, it's coming. And it's the very essence of why you can even be saved. We accept his judgment because we know we are loved because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Fifth, the confrontation is questioning God's faithfulness. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, from the day of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. He says, return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse 
that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. In the context here, the the passage has to do with the commandment in Torah uh, in the law of Israel is that the Israelites were to give a tenth of everything. They were to give a tithe. That's where we get that word tithe. Uh, in the New Testament, the tithe does not exist under the new covenant of grace, but the call toward generosity of God's people, a people to continue to contribute to God's work, does exist. In fact, it says, it says that God loves a cheerful giver, that we are to give offerings with a joy that we have received from God's own generosity. And out of that, we recognize under His sovereign rule that everything I am, all that I have, all that I do, it belongs to Him. And He has the right to dictate His terms in regards to my life. With the children of Israel, that tithe was to support the priesthood and to support the maintenance of the temple. And that's why we considered even a couple weeks ago in Haggai, where it says, you know, you're building your own houses while my temple remains in ruins. Now, let me just state here that God does challenge the Israelites. He says, you think that I'm not capable of providing for you? And what he's testing is their faithfulness. Uh, He's testing their faithfulness because they are doubting his faithfulness. They They are doubting his provision. And what he says to them, he goes, I... I test you. This is a fascinating passage. And I recognize that this passage has been a passage that has been horribly abused by specifically evangelical preachers in the West who have utilized this as a means of manipulating people to support extremely extravagant lifestyles. Like that pastor of like a last year that was, you know, did a big push to get a second jet for his ministry. Uh, and I mean, and which has led to multiple comedic responses, uh, blasting evangelicals for being primarily about getting into people's wallets. I saw this one where this guy was did a mockery of the of the 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 preacher that basically manipulates his people, and he says, "I, I want you to contribute your money." He goes, "Listen, the rapture is going to happen any moment, so you don't need your money." Just go ahead and send it to me. God has told me I'm going to stay behind to help lead all the other people to the Lord. And I'm going to build a Jesus jet. And on the bottom of the jet will be Jesus with His arms spread so that when we fly over poor countries, they can say, look, there's Jesus in the sky. This is the kind of stuff that the non-believer does with the abuse of Scripture and the manipulation of the people that often happens in the church. But just because there's manipulation around Scripture with the uber-prosperity evangelist doesn't mean that we ignore text. Doesn't mean that we don't call people to sacrificial generosity. And let me just tell you, unfortunately, the, the multitude of years I spent before I was a Christian watching late-night TV evangelism on weed for entertainment really has affected my ability to talk about money. Uh, and I have not been, not been the best at continually calling people to sacrificial giving. But let me just state this since we're on the text. The church that you're sitting in, how did we get it? It wasn't just given to us. I mean, it kind of was graciously by Redeemer, but we accepted a large mortgage payment. How did we do an 800,000 remodel on that? 
How do we own the, the Northeast building on Fremont? And how are we going to afford sending Cameron and Susanna and a team to that, to that location in January? And how is it that, that the pastoral staff that is able to provide for your needs and meet with you personally? And, and, and how, do you, how does the preacher preach the gospel continually? How does the gospel go forth? How do we pay the multitude of, of ministry partners that we partner with throughout the city to make sure that the gospel is happening both in word and deed? How do those things happen? It happens by you. And this is not for those of you who are sitting here who are guests, and I just want you to know this is probably the first time I've even spoken about this in a year. So if you're new today, this is not a normal moment in Door of Hope's history. But it is an important one because I just want you guys to know this. Our attendance three weeks ago, three weeks ago, our attendance was double that of what we were exactly a year ago in July, which means more people are coming to hear the gospel that haven't heard it before. More new people are coming, but our giving is down. And that tells me something that's problematic. Now, I don't understand all the dynamics of it. I recently met with a, a, a friend who is a pastor, also of a large urban church, who said to me, he said, listen, he goes, no matter how big, a church of 1,500 in the city will bring in a quarter of what a church the same size in the suburbs brings in. And maybe that has to do with just maturity, age, season of life. And we've always been a church that has been, you know, supporting the baristas of Portland. I understand that. Um, and so, but the fact is, is that is, is if we were to really ask ourselves, and I'm, I'm speaking to you who actually say Door of Hope is my church. I am a member of this church. And you are a follower of Jesus. This is one of those areas, is, is this an area that's surrendered in your life? Because if we were to look at the amount of people that actually make this church possible for you, possible for you to have your coffee, possible. It's a very, very small number of you that actually make this church happen every week. And I want to call all of you toward a radical generosity. And I want to call all of you just to give something. Because Darcy and I, that's a priority for us. It's the first fruit. We don't give after we've paid all our bills to see if there's anything left over. That's something that we believe firmly in this and we give first and foremost back to the church before we do the other things because this is part of our our responsibility as followers of Jesus to see his kingdom go forth nobody's living rich on the door of hope staff we run lean and mean and and this is the this is the the desire i have a nice blazer it's my only one okay <laughs> so <laughs> And the gold tooth was a gift, all right? So <laughs> it really was from someone in the church. They're like, we can't let Josh have a half a front tooth. Let's give him a gold one. Uh, and that was just a midlife crisis, so don't judge me. Uh, my point is that we all have those areas, and we have those seasons. I do too, where we just know that if we were to really be honest about how we spend our money, how we actually manage or steward what it is that God has given us, it's very easy for us to say, that's mine. God, you can have everything, but don't mess with that. Portland's expensive. Don't ask me for that. If everybody just gave something, we would have no deficit, and we would be able to plant many churches. So just take that to heart. Ask the Lord what he's speaking to you about that. He enjoys a joyful giver, not one that gives out of guilt. Guilt and shame have been put away at the cross. We are free 
but we are also free to do not what we want, but what is right. And this is a part of being a part of his family and his kingdom. Finally, the sixth confrontation is questioning God's goodness. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And this is what God does. When those who question his goodness bring the complaint before Malachi, God points them to those in the community that are faithful. And notice what he says about them. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. The fear of the Lord is not, I'm afraid of God, I have to avoid him. The fear of the Lord is awe and wonder at his goodness. And the book of remembrance that God keeps of those who are faithful also speaks in parallel to the book of of God's very written word that is a revelation of God's goodness and character that the children of Israel, in spite of the difficulties that they were facing, clung to in faith. And God says, look at them. There are faithful in your midst. Learn from them. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Essentially, I believe that this, this call uh, for us, this is what happens when we become when we become disenchanted with our Christian life and when we're bored in it, we often start to turn uh, toward other things to fill in what is lacking in our Christian experience. But often what is lacking in our Christian experience goes all the way back to the root of not really believing God that loves us, which then leads to an unwillingness to surrender, which an unwillingness to surrender leads to questions around God's character in other arenas because, because there, is an, there is a fundamental misstep. You can't you can't skip steps this way. We work from victory, not toward it. And what happens is that we then begin to try to fill in the fact that our Christian faith is lacking by listening to the multitude of voices that are all around us right now trying to give us new, new ways of self-discovery and meaning. But I would just simply give you the words of Jesus. Bear your cross, follow the Lord, pay no attention to the passing religious vogues. The masses are always wrong. Thank you, Tozer, for that brutal statement. The masses are always wrong. If you're punk rock like me, that's very appealing advice. So, finally, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in His wings. Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. And the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And then here he says... Remember the law of my servant Moses. Keep yourself anchored in my history. The statutes and the rules that I commanded him to all of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. So we keep ourselves anchored in him. He is the end of the law. And behold, I will send you Elijah and look forward with hope. The prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
The law and the prophets both point with expectation toward Jesus who is the end of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets. And so it is that Jesus is the Son of Righteousness and He is the One who rises with healing in His wings when we understand God's heart toward us. And this is why I want to close with this beautiful quote from my favorite book of this year. It actually came out in 2009 by a woman named Mary Carr. She's an amazing writer, poet, and kind of the queen of memoir. And she wrote in her book Lit, which was about her journey through alcoholism, uh, severe alcoholism, uh, into uh, through the loss of her marriage, and into uh, ultimately um, rehab AA that led her to faith. She actually became a Catholic. She was almost going to become an Anglican, but she said the church building was too cold. Uh, but she talked about the masks that she wore in her misunderstanding of God. And when she finally was ready to move from higher power to, I need something personal. I need a God that I can know. She, she, she began that journey of faith. God was clearly drawing her heart. Jesus was drawing her heart. And she goes to a priest. And this is her statement after a day of confessing. A day of coming out into the open. She says, at the end, jazzed to the gills on my plastic bottles of Coke, I sit drained over the overflowing ashtray. And Brother Francis blinks behind his smeary horn rims, saying, leave all that stuff here with me. God wants you to put this stuff down now. Go wear the world like a loose garment and be of good cheer. If you let God in, he'll take this shame from you. This is what it looks like when we live in the light of Jesus Christ and his cross. The revelation of God's continual goodness, graciousness. His sovereignty means that he chooses to move toward us in our brokenness. But he is not content to leave us there. Let us not be like the children of Israel constantly questioning him, refusing to trust in him. You will never have all your answers figured out before you put your trust in him. You trust in him and then begin a journey of love in which he continually opens up the truth of who he is as well as who you are. May the God of love bring forth the Son of Jesus, the Son of righteousness, and may he bring healing in his wings to your life. This is the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Hey friends, this is Josh from Door of Hope. We're in a period of expanding our efforts as a church to reach our city with the gospel, which includes having moved into our new building as well as pursuing church planting. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and we never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help us as we seek to expand our ministry in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your support and prayer. To donate financially to Door of Hope, just head to doorofhopepdx.org and select Generosity and Give Online. Thanks again for listening.